This is Scott Becker with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. We are thrilled today to be joined by Bavesh Shah. Bavesh is in charge of specialty pharma. He's also the director of, he'll tell me the exact titles, immunology and the oncology pharma line. Or he'll explain to me better. We're going to talk about specialty pharma today, where the opportunities, where the challenges, the role, and more. Bavesh, can you do me a favor? I know you're a Boston medical center. I know you're head of specialty pharma. Can you do a better job of introducing yourself than I did? And then we'll ask you about specialty pharma. Uh, no, exactly how you said, Scott. Uh, thank you for um, having me. Um, you know, obviously, I oversee hematology, oncology, immunology, and various other specialty programs at Boston Medical Center. Um, and, you know, my role is, is uh, more involved with developing the clinical outcomes. Uh, from our program um, and having truly a best-in-class specialty pharmacy program. And, and talk about clinical outcomes. Where are you seeing advances? Where do you stop and say, you know, they want us to use this pharma versus that or this drug versus that, but we don't necessarily see the difference. How do you judge those things and where are you seeing developments and advances? That's a great question. You know, I think as health systems are developing their specialty pharmacy programs, um, you know, I think that they're really focusing on going beyond the traditional outcomes that, you know, uh, many of the PBMs use, such as uh, the medication possession ratio or, or uh, PDC. Um, you know, we have significant data at our fingertips at, with, with looking at actual clinical outcomes. So, you know, when we're talking about hepatitis C, we can actually see how many patients have a clinical cure looking at the SVR rates. You know, when we are treating HIV patients, we could see what the viral root suppression is for every single patient on the therapies that we are recommending, that we are actually managing, uh, and we're controlling the side effects, the supportive care, um, uh, CD4 count that these patients will have, which fluctuates very, uh, uh, very um, fluidly in patients with HIV because of compliance issues. Um, so, you know, ability to prevent these um, uh, admissions or healthcare-related uh, uh, resource utilization that we we can offset with a specialty pharmacy program. Um, it, it's becoming more transparent when you have a health system that can actually highlight their capabilities of doing that for their providers, the payers that they work with, and ultimately the the pharma folks who actually provide access to these medications. So. It, it really is a, a full circle, and of course, the patient is always in the middle, basically achieving better clinical outcomes for the patients that we serve. I'm going to ask you a couple questions about pressure from pharmaceutical companies or distribution companies, as well as vaccines. The vaccines are, of course, the biggest word of the day right now, everybody's up in everybody's mind. And the pressure from pharmaceutical companies, in, in the old days, pharmaceutical companies would sort of press hard to get their drugs on formularies, to make sure their drug was the preferred drug for something. How does that world work today? Is that still part of the ecosystem? You know, and, and I know and people would be resistant to pressure, and pharmacies companies would try all kinds of different things to convince a system or a medical director or chief of pharmacy or director of specialty pharmacy that they had the right answers. What does that ecosystem and that relationship look like today? Yeah, no, you know, there's there's definitely uh, pharmaceutical companies who actually understand, you know, how how their product is important to get in the hands of a health system, especially pharmacy, versus 
PBO owned specialty pharmacies. So I've actually seen a trend recently where pharma companies are actually denying access to PBM owned specialty pharmacies because these patients have such complex management of adherence and toxicities. Um, so if they do give the PBM owned specialty pharmacies, then the health system specialty pharmacies are not able to serve these patients for their second fill or their subsequent fill. So recently, you know, there have been several companies, you know, Care Pharma, which makes Solonexor. Um, you, you have Tocatinib, which is made by CL Genetics. Um, you have Fostamatinib, which is made by Rigel Pharmaceuticals, ITP drug. You know, all of these manufacturers have actually purposely not given PBM-owned specialty pharmacies access because they know the complexity of managing these diseases are, are, should be really in the hands of the providers and the health system-owned specialty pharmacies. So, you know, it, 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 there's definitely this movement that has changed the access but there are still manufacturers who will not give access to health system-owned specialty pharmacies because they have uh, a contractual relationship with these PBO-owned specialty pharmacies who actually have broader coverage to, to payers and, and which also kind of limits the, the specialty pharmacies from, that are health system-owned to do their part in managing these patients appropriately. Gotcha. In, in the old days, let me, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions when it comes to vaccines. But in the old days, the pharmaceutical companies would do all kinds of free samples, all kinds of other stuff. If that's less the case in the specialty, specialty pharma era, area, isn't it? I mean, there's not, I mean, you used to see it with primary care physicians, not so much specialty pharma, where they give all kinds of samples to try and sort of cozy up to the primary care physicians. But that doesn't really work in the specialty pharma area, does it? No, I, I, it, it doesn't. You know, obviously, the products are very unique. The toxicities are very unique. So, and, and the, the population that you're serving is, is very limited. So, when you talk about, you know, you're, you're taking care of a patient with non-small cell lung cancer with ALK-positive disease, that's about 7% of patients with non-small cell lung cancer that, that have this mutation. So, it's maybe hundreds or thousands of patients, not the millions of patients who may be on a diabetes medication uh, or hypertension medication, which is is is, is a much different uh, um, uh, treatment course and disease course. And what about you, you study clinical outcomes? Like what excites you? What are you seeing rapid jumps in pharmaceutical effectiveness over the last few years? You know, you might think of a specific drug. We don't have to tell us about the specific drug or the name of the drug. But where have you seen just a rapid jump and like, God, we're really struggling with treating this. This has helped a great deal. Have you seen some of that? And where are those areas? Sorry, Scott, are you asking if if there are drugs that have changed the way we treat diseases or in specialty or? Yeah, and talking about specialty diseases, especially pharma, you know, where are things that you've seen? Like I know, for example, in oncology, you know, after decades of core chemotherapy, there's been improvements through immunotherapy, precision medicine, through vaccines that are still a work in process, of course. But where are you seeing some of the improvements in clinical outcomes in specialty pharma? Are there areas that you've been particularly attuned to or particularly impressed by? Look, this is getting better here between the combination of the health system work and the pharmaceutical company work, are there places where you're seeing great advances? 
Yeah, no, there's significant advances across, you know, many of the disease landscapes that, that we manage in, in you know, I think that, of course, you, you probably see more of it in oncology because, as you had mentioned, precision medicine, where now we're able to, you know, do this broad molecular profiling on, on you know, many of our patients where they may actually have a specific malignancy, but then, you know, they progress on the standard of care and then there are other uh, uh, mutations that they may have where you can target those mutations. And if you can uh, target the appropriate mutation that's driving that tumor, you know, there's a significant improvement in, in, uh, in, in survival for these patients that we've seen. Um, so, uh, you know, I think this is where specialty pharmacy really plays a role is, is basically, you know, helping access these medications for patients. And then, of course, making sure that they stay on it. You know, we have, uh, there's, we know that uh, many of the patients who start these therapies initially, there's a time lag in terms of how, how fast they get on these therapies. So you can imagine you have a terminal disease, you've actually progressed on multiple therapies. Now this is your last line of therapy. And, you know, you're actually waiting for a prior author authorization to be approved. And then you have to figure out which pharmacy needs to go to. And then you have to figure out, you know, how are you going to pay for the copay that, that you have? So, you know, there is a lot of administrative things that happen before that patient gets down to that medication. So, you know, being close to the provider, you have access to the patient's clinical, I mean, uh, clinical picture and, and notes, which you can actually utilize to uh, decrease the time to access for those patients. And then, you know, there's a lot of oversight that these patients need to have because, you know, there is nausea and vomiting, there is diarrhea, there is um, um, a lot of other supportive care measures such as hand-foot syndrome and, and things that they need support with, which needs to happen. And, and you know, I think that having one-stop shop where you have the provider, the, the pharmacy, the nurse, um, kind of like a, a patient-centered medical home for specialty really makes a huge difference for those patients with rare diseases or, you know, uh, uh, broad molecular profiling targets that we're doing now. And, and another question for you, vaccines, clinical outcomes vaccines, how much do you see in the work of vaccines? And then any thoughts on, of course, this COVID-19 vaccine, which is in everybody's mind, is to, not to be perfect, but how soon or how would you look at things like that and the role that you have, the, the, the vetting of vaccines? That's, a, that's an excellent question. So, um, Scott, I have to disclose that I'm actually participating in the Pfizer COVID vaccine trial. So I don't know if I got the placebo or, or the, the treatment, but I'll find out once, you know, we're unblinded. <laughs> so I, I do believe in the vaccine um, that, you know, that we have these amazing technology uh, you know, I think there's a lot of um, education that we'll need to do around vaccination um, uh, because, you know, obviously there's this distrust amongst folks that, you know, the government's just trying to push something out without actually validating the evidence, you know, um, and, and recently there was a meeting with the advisory committee, which actually, um, you know, instead of actually reviewing some data, I was basically talking about how are we going to look at the data? <laughs> So, but, you know, I think a lot of experts who are actually on this meeting, they actually basically said, you know, we're actually comfortable with the, the way that FDA is actually looking at the evidence. You know, it, it's, it makes sense. And, you know, um, I, I think that 
we need to do more of, we'll, we'll have to do more education around um, uh, vaccination. But I think especially pharmacy is going to have a very limited role just because of the fact that this is something that, you know, especially pharmacy is not going to be able to send to your home that you can self-administer or you can go to a specialty pharmacy to get it. Uh, but pharmacy is going to be a huge component of it. You know, I, you, know you must have seen in the many of the news outlets that, you know, many of the retail pharmacies are actually hiring significant amount of pharmacists to actually, you know, help vaccinate because this is going to be a huge vaccination effort across the country, you know, beyond what we've seen with flu vaccination. So um, there's going to be a lot of resources. And I think pharmacists are really going to be the center of it because they have the biggest access point um, uh, across the across the, the nation. And, and not only pharmacists, you know, we have we have now authority from the government that pharmacy technicians, pharmacy students who are who are have the appropriate training would be able to do this. So so I think there's there's definitely um, a huge role that pharmacy pharmacists will be playing uh, in, in vaccination efforts, not just across COVID, but, you know, uh, across the other, the other diseases that we also need to make sure we're also staying on top of. Fascinating. So you don't know if you got the actual vaccine or the or the placebo vaccine. And, you know, I don't worry about being contagious to you because you're on the phone, but you feel pretty good. <laughs> well, I, I, I feel pretty good. I do CrossFit about five days a week and, you know, I haven't, haven't seen any extra limbs growing on me. It's been it's been 60 days. So I'm past the two minute period of, you know, having any any uh, any and I got my second dose. So, so I, I think uh, I, you know, but I. I, I don't know. And even if I did, I can't tell you. <laughs> right. And they, and they say that the, but what you're hearing from people that are involved in the discussion involved in is that the administration of this stuff, it's not going to be easy. It has to be fully refrigerated. Some other things they're telling us. So that's going to be a process to get this out to the public. Yeah. So the first few, first two, first two companies that are coming out, will be coming out with the vaccine are going to be, you know, um, it's going to be two doses. So it's not just one. And then the other thing is that it's minus 80 degrees, you know, for the freezer. So, you know, obviously getting that, you know, into a pharmacy and then, you know, there is, uh, you can imagine there's going to be a batch of vaccines that you can, you're going to be able to, defrost for a 24 hour period to vaccinate. So you have to have a certain amount of people that you're going to be able to vaccinate that day in order for you to, you know, even start the process of defrosting, you know? Um, right. So all of us have to go home and we've got to check our freezer functions because mine typically shows minus three degrees or something like that. And getting to <laughs> minus 80 is going to be hard. Well, it, this is not something that you would be storing at home, and I'm no joking. reason. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, fascinating, Vivesh. What a fascinating career that you've developed for yourself. I mean, fascinating. We appreciate you joining us. I'll, I'll wrap up with you just because we, we've got to let it go. But if, what if a ever, pleasure visiting with you. Yeah, absolutely, Scott. And then you know, so I, I also. I am co-investigator and a primary investigator on three COVID trials uh, also. So I'm actively involved in, very involved in, even though I specialize in hematology, oncology, and special, other specialties, like I do, you know, um, uh, have experience with, like, I'm very passionate about biosimilars and a lot of other, you know, I work with the FDA on some policy development recently, and we're doing stuff there. So, like, if you have other topics that you wanted to, like, do something like that, I'm, I'm happy to, you know, give you perspective. 
We, we would love to. One other question I will ask you, though, is it's the, you know, the politics of this have become completely insane. Mm-hmm. And generally, when I talk to hospital leadership, lab leadership and so forth, their core perspective would be and and, and you know that that look the government is trying hard on this stuff on the vaccines and the testing and all these kinds of things they may be imperfect but it's not you know it's not obviously as perfect as fox says it is but it's not nearly as bad as cnn says it is and the truth in all these things is generally somewhere in between mm-hmm. in terms of the government's efforts on these things mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I think one thing I would have to say is you have to stop listening to all the news and the media outlets. I mean, like, it's I, I I can't like stand all the different you know different perspectives that people provide, and you know, I I kind of I am a you know a a, a provider at heart, and you know, I I understand the science, and you know, I, I feel like I'm comfortable with it, and like. And, and I think the, the media probably just um, – Here's another question I have for you. Here's another question I have for you, and, and you could answer or not answer. You have this fascinating situation where our, our country has always looks at the anti-vaxxers mm-hmm. as kind of insane. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but small portion of people that are anti-vaccination for everything. Yep. And now this has been so politicized that it seems like half our country has become anti-vax for a period of time mm-hmm. because I believe the process is so politicized. I mean, it's, it's, it's literally, and this is not a negative or positive on anybody, mm-hmm. but it's really become an insane political debate. And what should be a scientific debate is this to the Pfizer thing feel safe and effective or not. Mm-hmm. But, but it seems to have become crazily politicized where now you have certain states saying they're going to have their own mini FDA trials mm-hmm. versus just dealing with what, you know, the, the FDA agrees. I mean, it's a fascinating set of circumstances, isn't it? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I, I completely agree. And, you know, I think that we, we struggle with this with a lot of drugs and a lot of other things besides vaccination. You know, I mean, we have patients with cancer who refuse cancer therapy because of their religious beliefs, you know, I mean, like, and, and then, you know, so I think like politics does drive, you know, a lot of these things, unfortunately. And, and, but I think like, you have to trust the scientists. You know, I think they they're not going to, you know, um, uh, approve something that is 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 unsafe for for public. And, and sometimes, you know, like what 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 the way people work is like that. N of one is more powerful than any randomized controlled trial that you can show. Even the providers sometimes, you know. So so I think like you know. It, it, it's sometimes that real world evidence when, you know, you have people who are, you know, vaccinated and are like, you know, you, like entire cities and, and there is like zero cases coming out of there. Like, it's like, oh, wow. Like, you know, we need to do this. <laughs> Everybody yes, should be doing exactly. this. You know? So I think exactly. the real, real world evidence will really kind of help guide some of this. But initially, I, I I do see that there's going to be a lot of anti-vaccination, you know, um, concerns from people and push towards, you know, uh, not getting it, um, and you know, until until we have some type of real-world evidence that gets pushed out, even though, you know, the FDA is 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 already evaluating the 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 evidence of thirty thousand, forty thousand people, you know. <laughs> 
100%. No, it's absolutely a fascinating discussion, and we'll, we'll, it's just fascinating. And it's Pavesh, what a pleasure to visit with you. Brilliant, and thank you very, very much. Just a pleasure. No problem. Thanks, Scott. Have a great day.